0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please go with me to Acts chapter 8. It's a new year. It's the first Sunday of the new year, right? Is that right? Okay, thank you. I didn't check that before I said it. First of a new year, excited to walk together again with you. Um, we are uh, back in Acts, and I'm excited about that. And with the new year and back in Acts, we're going to go on an adventure today. Point of adventure, as you may know, is to explore and experience something typically unusual to your everyday. You don't live every day as an adventure because it's not an adventure. You're just a crazy person. Um... We're going to go on an adventure. Adventure is something that I like doing on uh, vacations, as uh, <laughs> as Aaron would know, in Canada. Uh, we trekked across much of Canada r- randomly on one day. It was exciting. Um, and thank God for GPS, because maps are probably useless in Canada. But uh, it was fun. Adventure is a, is a good thing for us. But the problem with adventure is it's not really an adventure if you know how it ends. Really? right? It's not as exciting. It's not uh, exploration, if you already know what's really there. It's not really much of an experience if if you're kind of already familiar with it. And I'm a, a little afraid, I think, with, with this story, with Philip and the Ethiopian <coughs> eunuch, that much of it is lost on us because we we already know how the story ends. We know, we know how it's going to go. We've read it before. I think our Familiarity with it, or even our overfamiliarity with with the scriptures, and even this passage, uh, but also when we think about some of the different principles that we're going to see, such as our familiarity with the Holy Spirit, some of these things make this story, I think, so much more lost on us. Now, when you think about how that relates to the way that we experience things, if you've spoiler alerts coming forward. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, we're not worried anymore about the giant rolling rock behind Indiana Jones because we know he gets away, right? We know he's not going to ever lose his hat because he's Indiana Jones. And so you watch and you're like, oh, that would stink. He's good, though. We're not shocked anymore in Star Wars when we hear that Darth Vader proclaims, I am your father to Luke, Right? Something that should be genuinely shocking and was to an entire generation. But now to us, we watch it again and we're just, that's weird. And see, a great deal of suspense leaves us when we know the story, right? But so too does a great deal of proper and and weighty emotion. Reminded of this just personally myself with with my kids. I watch any kind of movie uh, and they get They get scared when the villain shows up. They're scared of of what he's going to do and what their power is or how they're going to potentially beat uh, the good people. But I'm sitting there going, What are you afraid of? They're going to lose. The good guy always wins. Calm down. But there's great and true and right emotion in my children to be afraid of an enemy. And for me, I dismiss it and I discount them even because I know how it ends. There are so many spiritual principles in this passage that if, if it were up to me, I would break them into two weeks. And particularly as a teacher, it's, it was hard for me uh, to distill this down into a sermon versus just wanting to, to teach all of the spiritual principles that we see. Um, but the problem is, is if we just skim this, and, and much as I do when I read Scripture often, I just kind of read through it, and I, I miss so many of the principles because they're just so familiar. Even some little small things that that Luke specifically puts in here just to enlighten us, just to give us some more understanding of of what's going on in the context of what is happening in the story of how these people are interacting with each other. We just miss it, even though he's trying to be incredibly specific. And so what Luke is trying to display to us in this passage is nothing short of remarkable. Indeed, it's miraculous. And so, New Year on this adventure, let him who has ears hear, and he who has eyes see, and hopefully see this passage as if for the first time. Keeping in mind Luke's intention at the beginning of both his gospel and in Acts, that he is trying to write an orderly account, that he can display for Theophilus what is happening, what's transpiring in the Christian event, in the coming of the Christ, and in the Christian event of the church. And so for First-time readers, or for people who have never heard this before, this story is absolutely miraculous. So let's look at Acts eight twenty-six through 40. Says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, at this miraculous story, let us grab the weightiness of what is going on, of what the Spirit is doing, of of the unveiling and unfolding of your plan for the world through the salvation vehicle of the church. Father, let us be humbled today as we begin a new year to set our pride aside and to approach your word, ready to be transformed and ready to let you have your way with us. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of us who are familiar with it, who lose a sense of adventure because we're familiar with it, we read a story like this and we go, that's neat. It's a neat story, right? It, it is. It's a neat story. There's a lot going on here. Philip goes out to the desert, finds this guy that's not like him, uh, runs up to him, which is a little funny, and and says, "Hey, you know what you're what you're reading? No, come up here and explain it to me. It's this Old Testament thing. Awesome. Oh, you want to get you want to get saved? You want to get baptized? That's awesome. Let's get dunked. Oh, neat, neat story, All right? And we move on. What's next? Saul becoming Paul wrote to Damascus, the hallmark of Acts. This is is where it happens, right? Oftentimes, we fly through chapter 8. Chapter 8 was Philip going into Samaria, as we just saw six weeks ago. (laughs) They're driven out of Jerusalem because of persecution. They scatter, and so Philip goes into Samaria and finds great success, but he also finds a challenge in Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. And then he goes at the call of the angel of the Lord to encounter the Ethiopian. And that happens, and now we're, we're at Saul. Acts can officially begin. But that's not Luke's intention. Luke's intention is to set up for us a good contrast. And if you did uh, renovate us this week, which I, I hope you were able to, to peek at, you start to see some of the contrasts that are developing throughout this portion of Acts before we get into the craziness that is, that is the adventures of Paul the Apostle so in Acts 8 through 11, so starting from where we began six weeks ago uh, and then through the next couple chapters, you're going to see Luke progressively exposing the way that God makes it possible for the gospel to move out of Jerusalem for the specific purpose of fulfilling the promise in 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And so the strangeness of of this particular encounter is is highlighted by this characterization with the Ethiopian. And what is interesting is that he is ready to be taught by Philip the Jewish scriptures. And so we see the first of, of three significant actual conversion accounts that are coming. And each of these illustrate a different transformation that's appropriate to the different culture. Now, What is interesting about this threesome that we see of Ethiopian eunuch, of Saul becomes Paul, and then of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, it's kind of predicated by something. Samaria and Simon the magician. So you have this threefold repeat of different conversions that are successful. But what's interesting is right before that you have this picture too, to contrast with them, of mass evangelism to Samaria, apparent success with Simon, but then we see the ultimate failure in Simon's uh, faith. And so when we look at this now, not triplet, but quartet, we see a very interesting picture as we see Luke explaining what conversion looks like to all these different people in all of these different settings and in all of these different cultures. You see, Simon was looking for power, right? He sought to bring power by his own power. He wanted the power to be able to purchase and to instill in others the Holy Spirit, and he sought to do that through financial means. He wanted power, and so he used his own power to gain more power. And when Peter shows up from Jerusalem, he rebukes him to his face. Many people have wondered if Simon was just a backsliding Christian or whether he was actually a believer at all. I think Peter's words make it very clear that he was never a believer at all. For a believer does not need to seek forgiveness from God anymore. They are forgiven. They stand forgiven. They live a life of repentance and faith, but they are forgiven. And Peter's claim to Simon is he hopes that there would be some salvation, some forgiveness at all. But then we have that picture contrasted with this passage. When we look at this Ethiopian eunuch, what is he looking for? I mean, when you look at this passage, where's the question? In almost every text of scripture, there is a question. And if you can identify the question, you can typically identify the main point. And So what is the question that the Ethiopian eunuch has? We're going to be looking for that. But when we think about ourselves, what are you looking for? What's he looking for? What's the Ethiopian eunuch looking for? What was Simon looking for? What are you looking for? Because what we're looking for often betrays to us what is driving our hearts. It displays what we're striving for, the end that that we really want. Oftentimes it helps us see what motivates our behavior, what motivates our language, what motivates our thoughts. What are you looking for? This new year, what are you looking for? Scripture certainly commends self-reflection. It certainly commends a growth in our character. It it commends reflecting and looking forward. Even though our plans may fail because God's plans are superior, we are still encouraged to reflect. So this year, what are you looking for? If I didn't say already, our first point today is that salvation is the work of God. When we look at this passage, we see that salvation is the work of God. Ultimately, the Ethiopian eunuch has a question. What's he looking for? He has a question, and he, he, he says it later in verse 34. But there's a question behind his question. The true question is, how can I be saved? How can I know the good news? Let's look at our setting here. Philip was in Samaria, had experienced great success in mass evangelism, had seen signs and wonders, had had the apostles themselves come from Jerusalem and commend the work and approve the work, and they were then united, the Samaritans and the Jewish believers, together in the church because the Holy Spirit united those two together. Now we see in verse 26, an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Rise up, go towards the south, to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now? We're having such great success here. You want me to, you want me to go now? Now certainly one of the big problems of, uh, of missions and evangelism, uh, particularly mass evangelism, is that you have... Uh, salvation decisions, as it were, but you have little to no discipleship, discipleship follow-up. Uh, particularly in many cases when it's someone that you will never see again and someone you've never met, it's not particularly hard to put yourself out there and witness to them. At least compared to someone that you know and you stand to lose a relationship, you stand, you stand to, to lose standing with them. It's easy in some respects to go and proclaim the glories of God to those you'll never see again. It's hard to stay there and walk with them, to teach them all of the things I have taught you. As the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Well, certainly there's a place for that, but the overarching emphasis in our missions should be that we make disciples, that we help disciple them and bring them And so, Philip rightly might have an inclination to say, But I need to stay here. Great things are happening here. I need to educate the people here. I need to bring them along and make disciples here. But what does he do? Rise and go, verse 27, and he rose and went. That is a great passage of scripture right there. Rise and go, Philip, and he rose and went. That's obedience. That's phenomenal obedience. Philip is first commanded by the angel to go south, and, and it's not just go, but he doesn't tell him why. The angel doesn't tell him for what end, and that's often how God deals with people that are his, in some measures just to prove their obedience. Oftentimes, God will show us what he will have us do, and he commands us to do this or to, to do that, and he keeps the success, he keeps the the end, he keeps the possibilities hidden within himself. So we need to be content with the commandment of God alone. No matter the reason or even the fruit of the obedience, we need to be content with his commandment. Because we know this, that all of the commandments of God contain a hidden promise, right? All of the commands of God contain a hidden promise. Prom- promise, And so that when we obey him, all of the work that we take in hand will be successful. Anything that God commands us to do that we do will be successful. Now, at the risk of sounding like a health and wealth and prosperity type preacher, it doesn't necessarily mean our measure of success. So God has prepared good works for us to do that we should walk in. In them, And when we walk according to his promises, we will, as Paul says to Timothy, show ourselves to be approved workmen. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him. It doesn't mean that it's going to work out the way we want. It doesn't mean that every time we go to evangelize, we will see success. Look at Jeremiah. That's not the point. Jeremiah, despite his entire life of struggle and suffering and apparent failure, was successful. And so as we undertake the commands of God, we know that there is a hidden promise that we obey Him and His commands and His work, and it will turn out well. It should be sufficient to us, too, then, when we talk about studying, when we talk about the Scriptures, that we investigate them deeply, as we're going to see later. Unfortunately, many times, we don't take the Scripture's commandments at their value. We take the Scripture's commandments and we say, yeah, well, when I have time, or I'm not sure that that really fits me now, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, and so we, we don't listen to it. We want, like Philip, an angel to come to us and say, rise and go. Rise and go, Rusty, go do this task. But the thing is, is that God has already given us, sufficiently taught in His Word, what we ought to do. The answer is already given. We're never short of counsel of what the will of God is, we're never lacking a helper. We simply have to submit ourselves to the government of the Spirit. And so John Calvin says nothing hinders or keeps us back from being ready to follow God except our own slothfulness and coldness and prayer. We don't need an angel to come down and tell us what to do. God has given us his word and he's given us his spirit. And if we lack wisdom, we ask to him who gives it abundantly. And he will tell us what to do. And so for us, we have a commandment to rise and go. And so we should rise and go. Now, why do you think that the, the angel of the Lord did not have to tell Philip what to do? Well, because Philip's only been doing one thing. What's Philip looking for? To answer the question of what's the eunuch looking for, Simon looking for, you looking for. What's Philip looking for? An opportunity to preach. That's what he does. That's what he's been doing. That's what the apostles have been doing since Pentecost. Even after they were beaten, they left rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer. And they went on to preach. (coughs) And so, God didn't need to say, go and preach, Philip. He just said, go, Philip. You know what to do. You know what to do when you get there. You just do what you always do. John MacArthur says it's amazing how many times Christians need to be reminded as to what we're supposed to do. Just go. Go and preach. What's interesting about this Angelic command that took Philip away is that he was in great success. And I love this little piece that, that Luke throws in here at the end of verse 26, right? Here's the command of the angel go to the south of the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. What does Luke inform the reader to? This is a desert place. right? This is a desert place. Now, even more so, if we, if we were familiar with the geography here, is that Gaza at this point is a defunct city, it's been destroyed has been rebuilt about 20 miles away from where the old site was. And so this road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza isn't really traveled anymore. So this is a desert place on a road that no one uses. And potentially some uh, language considers the word south to mean noon. So in a desert place at noon where no one is. Go there. Go there. And so we see really the first factor, I think, in right preparation and and right understanding of how the salvation of people is the work of God, is that God is the preparer. It's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation begins with the Spirit of God. Salvation is God's work. It's not man's work. The initiative is in the grace of God. It's God's will. The Spirit is the one that says, Philip, go. Go. See, so when we think about salvation, no one deserves salvation. Nobody earns it. No one can earn it. No one even of his own accord finds it or discovers it or seeks it. God dispenses it according to his grace and sovereign will in the framework of grace. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read a, a familiar verse. It says, but the natural man, and this means the man in his natural sinfulness, man apart from God, man in rebellion, man dead in sin, man without spiritual capacity. This man is just man in his naturalness. Natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they are foolishness to him. They just don't make sense at all. Natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you see a a second one, which is like a a double blindness. 2 Corinthians 4, 3, If our gospel be hidden, it is hidden to them that are lost, and whom the God of this age. Who's that? That's Satan. The God of this age is Satan. He has blinded the minds of them who believe not the light of the glorious gospel that should shine unto them. So you see, they're they're blinded by their naturalness, and they're blinded by Satan himself. And so men exist in double blindness. They they can't see salvation at all because they're incapacitated, right? And so the initiation, the beginning of salvation is not the work of man. It is simply the work of the Spirit of God who breaks through these barriers, this double-blindedness. Salvation is the work of God alone. And so when we see John 6, Jesus simply says this, No man comes unto me unless the Father, what? Draws him. No man comes to the Father unless he draws him. Right? Salvation is the work of God what happens next? We see Philip begin to engage this situation. God uses faithful people. God uses faithful people. Verse 27, And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So some more helpful background on this. This Ethiopian is uh, a a, a eunuch, which uh, is pretty commonplace when we're thinking about court officials in the ancient world that are not Jewish. This is primarily a pagan practice. It was not uncommon for eunuchs to rise to high degrees of power due to their nature, uh, and that they were not a threat to the royal line, for obvious reasons. And so this particular eunuch is not named, but he's a court official, and he is like the chief treasurer. Now, a the, the word Candace, the name Candace, is not actually the name of the queen. Uh, it's kind of like an uh, honorary title, much like Caesar, um, or, or or bishop could be, right? So Candace is like uh, Pharaoh in that sense, right? So... This uh, dynastic ruler of Ethiopia um, is is Candace, and this is the uh, treasurer of of that nation. Now, in this particular case, Ethiopia, to them, represents basically all of Africa except Egypt. It is huge, huge country. And so for the Jews, as far as they are concerned, this is the ends of the earth. There's nothing beyond. Now, basically, this man, as I like to think, is in in and, and charge of all her treasure which basically means that he has all the coffee right Ethiopian coffee is where it's at now sadly investigating uh my uh, eisegesis a little bit more uh, I came to find out that this Ethiopia is not actually Ethiopia as we know it but it's more like the region of Sudan modern Sudan but nonetheless this this court official has all the treasure all the treasure And he has come to Jerusalem Jerusalem to worship, even against his own own country's religion, even against the fact that he's going to be gone for at least a year. This is a thousand-mile journey. It takes about six months to travel there and six months to travel back. There's a great chance that he could be usurped in the process. But he goes. He goes. Why does he go? Well, because he wants to seek God. He's looking for something. And so we see that God uses faithful people. When you think about uh, craftsmen and their use of their hands and tools, you have like sculptures, right? You've seen the sculptures of Michelangelo. And you think about it when you look at them, and it started with just a block of stone. Or a woodworker starts with a tree, a block of wood. Now, what's interesting about the arts and crafts is that you and the master craftsman can all start with the exact same materials, and in fact, you can even have the exact same tools. But at the end of their work, they're going to have a masterpiece. And at the end of our work, we're going to have a mess, right? It's not the tools. It's not even the material. It's all wrapped up in the artist. Now, when we think about us, we're, we're a tool. You're a tool, I'm a tool, and that's all we are. Don't ever confuse yourself with the artist. The spirit is the artist. He's the craftsman. You're only the tool. But, but. You are a tool. It's nice to be a tool, isn't it? We get to be a part of what God is doing. But there's a qualification to be used, and that qualification is holiness. We find in 2 Timothy 2.20, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. But for God's finest work, we see in verse 21, if a uh, man therefore purge himself from these He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and, listen, fit for the master's use, prepared for every work. So if you want to be God's good tool, you stay pure. You purge yourself from sin. And God uses holy tools, holy instruments to do his finest work. And when we look at this session, we have have an angel. Why doesn't the angel go to the Ethiopian eunuch? Because he's using the tool of Philip. He's using the tool of Philip. We have Philip who is very different in almost every way from this man he's getting ready to encounter. Philip is a middle-class Jewish man. He was one of the seven that were selected to be, as we would call them, deacons. This man was that he's encountering was racially different. He was, he was black. He was very black, as Timothy Keller would say. He was from the outermost known civilized world. He was as far away from Philip's Judaism as possible. And so he would have been considered a, a barbarian. And it's not just that. He was, he was sexually altered. He was a racially different, sexually altered barbarian. As different from Philip as you could possibly get. And how do we typically respond to those type people? To those that are so different to us even those that are slightly different to us. When we look at the Old Testament, we see how God's people responded. We went through Jonah together. How did Jonah respond to those that were culturally different from him? Jonah ran away. He went the opposite way. And when he finally obeyed and went and preached, he preached and the whole city repented. And Jonah goes out to the side of the city and he says, Kill me, God. If there's anything I can't stand, it's Gentile belief. Then we see the exile, which is an unwilling event again, right? They were forcefully put into exile. But it shouldn't be a surprise to us now when we find this Ethiopian who is, as we would call, a God-fearer, not saved, but a God-fearer, seeking this question, asking these questions, what is he looking for? It shouldn't surprise us because God scattered his people in a forceful manner so that godliness, light, might go out into the world. And so for us who are afraid of other cultures, God is not afraid of other cultures. God wants all cultures to be drawn into himself. The Israelites weren't meant to be this reservoir of holiness, God's personal pet project, the only ones that he loved. It wasn't supposed to be a reservoir of holiness. It was meant to be a channel that it would be directed to all of the nations, that all of the nations might experience the God of the universe. But they typically closed up the channel. And so God forcefully opens the floodgates throughout time. And now finally in this passage, we see him going to the ends of the earth and engaging someone who is absolutely different than what we would expect. There should be incredible consequences when we think about what he's doing. I think about the gall of Philip to run up next to this chariot Right? The the Spirit, it shifts the language to the Spirit. The Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran. He didn't walk, he ran to catch up with this chariot. Do we engage other cultures that way at the hint of the Spirit pushing us? And yet, as we read this passage, it's easy to skip right over what's going on. Now this. This man, as Eusebius the historian says, this Ethiopian, according to the tradition of the Abyssinian church, became the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ in Africa. And what seems like an insignificant little move, leaving Samaria and mass evangelism and mass success for a road that no one travels in a desert place to meet with a man who is sexually altered black barbarian, ends up being the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ in Africa. And so we see that God's plan is the one that, God's plan is what brings salvation about. And God uses faithful people. When God calls us to go, we don't just go, we run. Now, let's look at this engagement that they have together. Philip has run over. He goes up to the chariot and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he says to him, Do you understand what you are reading? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to come sit with him. The eunuch was just in Jerusalem. I mean, to a degree, he had proven the genuineness of his budding faith, at least, by the trek to Jerusalem. Well, what happens when this man shows up in Jerusalem at the temple? They don't let him in. Deuteronomy 23.1 one. You cannot enter the temple in his his state. Not because he was a Gentile. There was a Gentile court. But because of his, there's kids, other state, <laughs> you cannot enter the temple. And so he makes a 1,000-mile, six-month journey and can't even get into the temple. You'd think a man of his delegation and the people that are in his entourage would maybe enlighten the apostles who are still in Jerusalem as to this guy and they don't meet him and so uh, the question is why would god allow the eunuch to suffer rejection in jerusalem before he sent him a teacher i think it's because it was profitable it was helpful for the eunuch to face rejection by the law because now he's more able and ready to receive the doctrine of the gospel of grace see, God sent no apostles to him in Jerusalem. It was better that Christ should be set before him after being separated and withdrawn from the the external pomp and ceremony and excitement of the temple to be pushed away from that. And instead, he sought the way of salvation quietly when he was at rest. John Chrysostom, the church father of the third century, says this, Great also is his studiousness, that even sitting in his chariot he read. Observe again his piety, that though he did not understand, he read. And then after reading, he examines. John Calvin would echo this and say, We must greedily, with a prompt mind, receive those things which are plain, and where God opens our mind. But as for those things which are hid from us, we must pass over them until we see greater light. And if we be not wearied with reading, it shall at length come to pass that the Scripture shall be made more familiar by continual use. What's he saying? There are things in Scripture that are easy to understand, and there are things that are very difficult. We need to read. And as we encounter things that we understand, we should welcome them wholeheartedly, and we should be glad that we are able to receive and understand the things of God, for we are not natural man anymore as believers. We can understand the things of God. But for those things that are hid from us, those things that we don't understand, we should unfortunately pass over them until we receive greater light or illumination from the Spirit. And if we're not, as he says, wearied with reading, if we don't grow tired of reading, if we don't give up, it will at length, it will come to pass that the Scriptures will be made more familiar to us. How? By continual use, through practice. John MacArthur Speaks of verse 29 and the the running. He said, God said, Go. And Philip ran. I like that. I like that. But you know, boldness belongs to spirit-filled people. He quotes Acts 4 31. He says, What does it say? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with what? Boldness. They were just going everywhere, preaching, and it was just another opportunity to preach. He was doing it anyway, and so he just ran over and he continued. And Philip was a good tool. But hear the desire of the of the artist next point the gospel requires humility hear the desire of the artist listen to the voice of the spirit this is the voice of the spirit here ready philip run up to that racially different sexually altered man that you would never ordinarily have anything to do with and stay close this man who's likely being carried by other men of the same kind and warriors and other horses, his delegation, protecting the guy who's in charge of all the money in Ethiopia. Run up to him. Run up to him. That's the trajectory of the Spirit. That's the language of the Spirit in the whole book of Acts. It's the trajectory of the Spirit now. It's what the Spirit still desires. That men of boldness, because they are filled with the Spirit, Would run up and surmount any racial barriers that we see. What does that mean for us in Dayton, one of the most segregated cities in America? It means we need to be sensitive, we need to be humble, we need to seek opportunities to surmount these barriers. It's easy for us to dismiss them because of the segregation. If we reach Beaver Creek, we're going to look like we do now. It's largely full of middle upper class white people. So how do we, Renovation Church, not just the church, but Renovation Church, seek to make this happen? All of us are in contexts that are full of culturally diverse people. And the danger is, is, we can often reflect the attitude of Jonah. Through selfishness, through neglect, through personal kingdom building, instead of looking like Philip. It's hard. It's different. It's shocking. It's shocking. Philip's not shocked. He's full of the Spirit. He's bold. But it's still shocking to us. We need to be filled with the Spirit. So how does the Ethiopian eunuch respond? He says, how can I, unless someone guides me? See, the Old Testament cannot be fully understood without interpretation. It needs a key to unlock the doors of its mysterious sayings. Jesus had provided such a key for the disciples, and we see that in Luke 24. In fact, this entire encounter is very similar to Luke 24, where a stranger shows up on the road and says, Hey, let me explain all of this for you, and then goes on his way. It's almost the exact same story. And so now Philip is being called upon to help the eunuch in the same way. The fact is this. God has given us two gifts. We've already talked about one, the Scriptures. The Scriptures tell us what we need. It tells us what we need to do. But he's also given us teachers. Teachers to open up and explain and expound and apply the Scriptures. It's wonderful to note God's providence in the Ethiopian's life. First, enabling him by the very fact to obtain a copy of Isaiah but then in sending Philip to teach him out of it. I lean into John Calvin pretty heavy in this next section, so in an effort to not grow weary, try to track with me, all right? This is really, really helpful in understanding our approach to the Scriptures, and as I want to challenge us in this new era of leaning heavily into the Scriptures. He says this, and Surely we must n- never hope, that he will ever show himself able to be taught, who is puffed up with the confidence of his own wit. And hereby it comes to pass that the reading of the Scriptures does profit so few at this day, because we can scarce find one amongst a hundred who submits himself willingly to learn. For while almost all men are ashamed to be ignorant of that which they are ignorant of, every man would rather proudly nourish his ignorance than seem to be a scholar to other men. As a great many would take upon themselves even pridefully to try to teach other men that which they do not know. But nevertheless, let us remember that the eunuch did so confess his ignorance. Yet he was still one of God's scholars when he read the scripture, but he did not understand this part. Well, he confesses his ignorance. This is the true reverence of the scripture. When we acknowledge that there is that wisdom laid up there which surpasses all our senses, And yet we don't loathe it, but instead we read diligently. We depend upon the revelation of the Spirit, and we desire to have an interpreter given to us. What is he saying? Humble ourselves. This world is full of so many people. You can barely find one amongst a hundred people who would submit themselves willingly to learn. Someone starts explaining something to us, and what do we start saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, 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 I, I got it. It's so hard for us to willingly say, Will you please explain this to me? I, I can't understand this. Will you help me? Our culture is full of, of, of prideful people who would rather remain in ignorance, who would rather nourish ignorance and proudly rather than humbly submit to learning. And so that person who is puffed up with the confidence of their own intelligence will never, ever learn. He goes on to say this, We have to be of the same mind to have an interpreter given to us if we desire to have God be our teacher, whose spirit rests upon the humble and the meek, as Isaiah 66.2 says. And if any man, mistrusting himself, submit himself to be taught, the angels shall rather come down from the heaven than the Lord would suffer us to labor in vain. Though, in this particular case, as the eunuch did, we must use all helps which the Lord offers to us for the understanding of the scriptures. Frantic men require inspirations and revelations from heaven and signs and wonders. And in the meanwhile, they condemn the minister of God, by whose hand they ought to be governed. Others, which trust too much to their own intelligence, will seek to hear no man. But God will not have us to despise those helps which he offers to us. And he will not allow those to escape scot-free, which despise those helps. And here we must remember that the scripture is not only given to us, but that interpreters and teachers... Are also added to be helps for us. For this cause, the Lord sent Philip, rather than the angel, to the eunuch. For to what end did God call Philip to be the voice instead of the angel who called, so that he would accustom men to hear men and not angels? This is assuredly no small commendation of external preaching, that the voice of God sounds in the mouth of men to our salvation when angels hold their peace. That, that is incredible. That's incredible. God will not allow those who seek his word to stay in uh, their ignorance. He will and does provide help. But we have to use all of the helps. We cannot read the scriptures, put them away, and wallow in ignorance saying, God sent an angel to explain it. God has given men and women to us to teach us. He says that frantic men require inspirations and revelations from heaven and signs and wonders. And in the meanwhile, they condemn the minister of God to whom has been given them to understand. God will not allow those people to escape scot-free. God didn't send the angel to explain it to the eunuch. He sent a man so that man would grow accustomed to hearing from men. I think it speaks to the humility as well. We talk about the gospel requires humility. You see the humility of the Ethiopian eunuch. This very, very rich man sits in his chariot of power and sees this very different man run up next to him and say, do you understand what you're reading? What does everyone else say in that moment? Yeah? Who are you? you Who are you? Now, he's reading out loud because that's what they did in the ancient world. You you just read out loud. They didn't start reading quietly until about the third century. So he hears them, and he says, you understand what you're reading. And the eunuch goes, how can I? No one has that amount of humility. No, yeah, kind of, right? That's what we would say. Or we would explain it from our ignorance, desiring to be a teacher. The, 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 The eunuch doesn't withhold in himself his own pride. But he also doesn't look at Philip and judge him. He doesn't say, who are you? He doesn't chide him. He doesn't give himself errors. He doesn't say that he did know. On the contrary, he confesses his ignorance. He shows his hurt to the physician, as it were. He sees at a glance, and he knows the the matter this person is willing to teach him. (coughs) Chrysostom says again, look how free he is from pride. The outward appearance announced nothing splendid. This is Philip. He's been traveling forever preaching. So desirous was he of learning and gave heed to his words and that saying that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 7 he that seeks finds. It was fulfilled in him. And so he he sought out Philip that he would come sit with him. You mark the eagerness, the longing desire. See God intended that Philip should have a a principle for him to do this whole work for. God has set up this whole thing. Salvation starts with God. He arranges the going. He arranges the meeting. He arranges the reading. If there's any other better passage to jump from from Scripture, I don't know it, particularly when we only have the Old Testament in hand. This particular passage that he's looking for looking at it from Isaiah 53, covers everything. It covers everything. You can plainly explain everything from this passage. This prophecy of Christ, above all others that we see, is perfect. It shows the the manner of the redeeming of the church. It shows that the Son of God does this by his death purchase. He purchases life for men. He offers himself in sacrifice. Why? To purge men's sins, so that he might be punished with the hand of God and even go down into very hell that he might exalt us to heaven, having delivered us from destruction. In some, this text teaches plainly how men are reconciled to God, how they obtain righteousness, how they come to the kingdom of God, how they're delivered from the tyranny of Satan, how they're freed from the yoke of sin. John Calvin says this to be brief from where they must gather all parts of their salvation it is all found here. The prophet teaches both things that Christ had to suffer that he might purchase life for us and that he was to suffer death willingly that he might blot out the disobedience of men by his obedience. And why do you think that the Ethiopian eunuch is interested in this subject? I think it's because of the injustice I think it's because of the injustice. We think about what are you looking for? What was Simon looking for? More power. What is the Ethiopian eunuch looking for? I think he's looking for guidance and justice. You think about the nature of a eunuch. They trade basically all of the typical modes of power that are ongoing for power now. In the ancient world, and even to some degree now, but particularly in the ancient world, the best way to s- ensure power, to ensure success, and certainly to ensure a legacy is to have a large family. And he has removed that potential from him in order to still gain an extreme amount of power. But what is there? You get into this Ecclesiastes type sense where this man has gained all power, all the money he could want, all the influence. And what's he stuck on? He can't even get into the temple. He doesn't have a family. He can't have kids. And he's reading about this man that's very similar. Look in verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear, is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. For a eunuch, that's the end. It's over. Who can describe his generation? You can't. There are no more. His life is taken away from the earth. His influence, his time is done. He has suffered in a sense the absolute destruction of all sense of identity. What is his identity? His work. And he reads this passage of this this man. He doesn't know who it is. And doesn't understand who it's talking about. But he sees injustice. All he sees is someone suffered and justice was denied him. His life was taken. He was slaughtered like a sheep who didn't even open his mouth. Note the injustice that's here. But this same injustice, as we know, is the injustice that was given to Christ. Calvin says, should we not expect that the same Trouble will come to us. That we should relate to the man of sorrows, this suffering servant that we see in Isaiah. That we should not be bound together, as Paul would say, in his trials and his sufferings, to even fill up what is lacking. We're bound together in him. And so Philip has an opportunity to take this passage and relate very personally to this man that is very. Very different from Him. Why? Because He comes from the Scriptures. He comes from the Scriptures. Salvation requires humility. And most of us, when we try to relate to other people, we relate from our life. But we can relate to other people from our life through the Scriptures. When people are suffering, it's not hard for us to relate to them in ways that we were suffering, but how Jesus suffered for us. And that's why we can suffer now. It's not, oh, you'll get through it. I got through it. No, you, you, you're going to have a hard time getting through it. I had a really hard time getting through that suffering. And so I leaned into Jesus who suffered for me, and I know that he suffered for me in the way that I will never have to and delivered me from that. And now I can rest in him. Even in this suffering, I know that he cares for me and that he will see me through and that one day I'll be with him. What, what do you think about Jesus? We relate from the scriptures through our experiences. That's what Philip does here. The prophets speak in different ways about different persons, and they speak of themselves or another person. I mean, the very fact that the eunuch had this question shows that he's thinking hard. He's thinking hard. In fact, Chrysostom says that we should be put to shame, both poor and rich, by this eunuch. This man has searched hard and diligently, but he's got a very... Very good question. Who is this person speaking of? Is he speaking this about himself or someone else? Is he speaking about himself or someone else? And so we then see verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth. <laughs> Last point, the gospel gives light. The gospel gives light. One commentator says that the phrase to open one's mouth is used when a significant or weighty utterance follows and so for us then the climax of this conversation is philip takes uh this this point of this passage and and then just simply declares the good news of jesus it just declares the good news of jesus i mean we think about what's the question in this passage he just gave it in 34 is this about himself or someone else that's a question but there's a question behind the question Who suffered for me? That man? Or is there someone else I should be looking for? And so Philip opens his mouth, and what does he do? Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the key to unlocking this. It's easy for us, as we read through this passage, we hit that Isaiah passage, and none of us are wondering whether or not this is about Jesus. We know it is. We know that Jesus related this passage to himself while he was here. And so when we read it, we're like, "So <laughs> eunuch, duh. Duh, this is about Jesus. We know that now. There's no adventure here. It's Jesus. But Jesus is the key to unlocking all of the Old Testament. And catch this, when we think about how we interpret Scripture, if we try to interpret Scripture from any other point other than Jesus, we're missing it. The Scriptures themselves interpret Scripture with Jesus so he explains to him the good news about Jesus. And what's interesting as he does that, immediately next, they were going along the road and they came to some water. (laughs) Strange coincidence in the desert place. Comes across water and what does he say? What prevents me from being baptized? So what do we know that Philip covered when he opened his mouth? He explained to him the good news of Jesus and clearly at some point got to the point of, and this is what it looks like, to respond in obedience. This is how you separate yourself from the world and respond in obedience and identify with who Christ is. And so we see this immediate zeal with the Ethiopian eunuch. And I'm, I know what all of you are thinking right now, but well, it would be great if when I talk to people about Jesus, they just accepted it, that i didn't have to struggle, or they don't bring in all this, this, this Big Bang stuff and, and, and science, because science is not godly. Whatever. It would be great if they just said, can you explain this to me? And they said, I believe it. Dunk me. Wouldn't that be great? It would be. And we're going to see a more difficult conversion in chapter 9. <laughs> One that required God himself to show up and do the angel thing. And then we're going to see another very normal conversion. Peter shows up to the Roman centurion and speaks to him according to the things of life. But in this particular case, we see this zeal of belief that comes. Where does this come from? Remember the the tool aspect earlier? I think Philip has a leg up on us in some senses. One, he's always preaching. He's always ready. He didn't have to be told what to do. He's Go. He rose up and went. Run up next to them. I'm sorry go up next to him, runs up to him. And the Spirit doesn't have to tell him what to say. Do you understand this? He's ready to speak. He's ready to speak from the passage. He starts here. He doesn't go, I don't understand Isaiah either. Let's go to John 1, right? There is no John 1. Not yet. He doesn't do that. He starts where he's at. And then Philip 2 has boldness. He's full of the Spirit. His holiness is ready And so when we think about the way that we share the word, when we share our faith with people, are we are we ready? Are we obedient? Or are we stalling? Do we have the words of life on the tip of our tongue ready to offer? Are we purging sin from our life so that we are ready to be used? Are we seeking to be a holy vessel? You see, this interaction that you see between these two has, has so much weight behind it. You have a man whose character is almost enough alone to convert this man. The character of Philip, joined with the instruction of the word and the preparation, as we already talked about from the Spirit, brings this man to new life, to new life. He stopped his entire caravan, got out of it, walked down into this water with a stranger, and in front of his entire entourage, is baptized into a different religion than their nation by a chance encounter with a stranger who spoke the words of life to him. This is miraculous. It's not something that we can just look over. Light was given to this man. Light so blinding, as we'll see in chapter 9, that it required immediate obedience and transformative obedience. See, the character of these men changed people, changed history, changed nations. So, What was the eunuch looking forward to? What was he looking for? He was looking for justice. He was looking for legacy. He was looking for hope. He was looking for identity. He was looking for salvation. Because just a few chapters away in Isaiah 56, you hear this. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Catch this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, And hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument, a legacy, and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these... I will bring to my, not my holy temple, to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. They weren't accepted in the temple. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. The eunuch finds everything he's looking for, and more. And this encounter with Philip. And so what happens? They go in the water, he baptizes him. Verse 39 When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way rejoicing. I am not one to read in, to read miracles into places where they're not. Um, but at the same time, this seems miraculous to me. And, and why should it be? Why should Philip just drastically disappear? Well, because the eunuch didn't know where he went. His entourage doesn't know where he went. Why did God do signs and wonders in the New Testament? As a stamp of confirmation to what his people were declaring, Philip, a stranger, comes and explains the text. And what does God do? A miracle. He removes him from the situation immediately as a sign of affirmation of the work of his people. Now I go with uh, Calvin says here. He says, Just as Philip had no reward at the eunuch's hand, let not the servants of Christ learn to serve him Or rather, let them so serve men for nothing that they hope for a reward from heaven. The Lord grants leave indeed to the ministers of the gospel to receive a reward at their hands for whom they teach, but he forbids them to be hirelings for which labor for money's sake. This should be the mark for which they shoot, to to win men for God. Our reward as pastors, yes, we get... Uh, financial compensation but we are not hirelings of the church for uh, money's sake. We labor for the souls of men. Philip doesn't receive a reward from a very 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 rich man as we just saw Simon the magician tried to do. He disappears before that happens. Philip's win is that he is one a man. Our desire needs to be the same that our Reward is in heaven. That we simply are trying to gain men themselves to God. And what does the eunuch do? He does exactly what Isaiah 56 says. What will he do? He'll bring them to his holy mountain. He'll make them joyful in the house of prayer and they will rejoice. And that's, that's what he does. He rejoices. John Calvin closes with this. He says, Faith and the knowledge of God brings forth, brings forth this fruit always of themselves. When we have faith and knowledge of God, we always see the fruit of rejoicing. For what truer matter of joy can be invented than when the Lord uh, not only sets open to us the treasures of his mercy, but he pours out his heart into us and he gives us himself and his son that we may want nothing to perfect happiness. The heavens begin to look clear. The earth begins to quiet. The conscience has been delivered from sorrowful and horrible feelings of God's wrath. We've been loosed from the tyranny of Satan, escaping out of the darkness of death, beholding the light of life. And so it's a solemn thing amongst the prophets to exhort us to be joyful and to triumph, so often as they are about to speak of the kingdom of Christ. But because those men whose minds are possessed with the vain joys of the world cannot lift themselves up to the spiritual joy. Let us learn to despise the world and all vain delights thereof, that Christ may make us merry indeed. When we read this passage, we see the opening of the gospel to the gentiles. Not in its most spectacular form, as we're going to see when Peter goes to the Roman Centurion, but we see God moving the mission He has orchestrated every aspect of this encounter. And we see a man who goes away rejoicing. When we encounter the scriptures this year, are we going to work hard? Are we going to work diligently to use all of the helps that are given to us to understand the scriptures? When we hear the word proclaimed in the mouth of men that were given to you to explain these things, you work hard to understand them. Do you come ready to worship? Do you come ready to exclaim the truths in song? Do you come ready to hear explained the truths of the word? Are you using all the helps or are you nourishing Ignorance. It's a challenge to me and to all of us that we not be in the same place this time next year that we are now, that we grow in the word, that we grow in diligence, that we grow then in obedience. So like Philip, when we're told to rise and go, we rise and went. That we be about the mission and that we lean into the gospel of Jesus Christ to help us see the freedom that we truly have. We're not defeated by sin. We're not locked down in darkness anymore. We've been redeemed by the light of the gospel, and we go on rejoicing. In some cases, just to change our family. In the supposed case of this eunuch, to change the entire continent of Africa. Be faithful where God has you and be ready to go. There's a lot coming this year in your work, in our church, in your house gatherings and your families. Let's be about the mission together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. It would be easy and understandable for it to be omitted from the scriptures. We can simply look to Peter's interaction, that apostle's interaction. But Father, you chose to give us here a portrait of a a layman, of, of a regular person, who is full of the spirit, full of good character, ready to be a tool, ready to be used by you to change the life of a single man. Father, a man that you have orchestrated so many events to reach, a man that you have been drawing to yourself and his home country away from the temple, away from the scriptures, And Father, we know that there are people in our lives who you are drawing. We know that there are people that you are drawing to you that you are going to use us to reach. So Father, allow us to be sober-minded in this, to not hear this message and say, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be about the Great Commission. But Father, to be preaching everywhere, to always have the good news on the tip of our tongue. And Father, for some of us, that means we need to experience the good news for the first time. And for others, probably the majority of us, we need to relish the gospel now. We spent an entire season in Advent looking at the, at the, the preparation, looking at the deliverance, all that comes in the the coming of a of your son, Father, revealing our state, to then showing that we can be redeemed. And Father, the story doesn't stop there. You've called men to be faithful. You've called your people to be faithful, to go. Father, help us to go. Well, we love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, Amen.